This is episode 96 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Carly Heath. Carly earned her BA from San Francisco State University and her MFA from Chapman University. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, Carly teaches design, art, theater, and writing for various colleges and universities. She spends all of her time and most of her money tending to a menagerie of rescued farm animals. The Reckless Kind is her first novel. Set in 1904 on an island just west of Norway, the novel follows a trio of queer teens, two boys and their best friend, who decide to defy the expectations of their rural Scandinavian village by leaving their families, living on their own, and challenging the town's patriarch in the region's annual winter horse race. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm so excited to have another Carly on the show. Carly Heath is here with us. Hi, Carly. Hey, Carly. It's great to be on the show. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you. We're going to talk about your new book, The Reckless Kind. But we were also, before we started the conversation here, before we started recording, we were talking about where our Carly's came from. We're both C-A-R-L-Y, and we realized both of our parents loved Carly Simon. So that's sort of where yep. Carly's came from. <laughs> we were we were both named after Carly Simon. So yeah. <laughs> so for people who watch the show and people who, who tune in and listen in, how I always love to start these conversations off is just learning a little bit more about how horses have touched the author's lives that come on the show. So Carly, talk to us about how horses have inspired your life. I've been involved with horses ever since I was a baby. When I was newborn, I had a, I, I had a twin sister. I do have a twin sister. And so our mom was really into horses. And like I heard at some point, of course, I don't remember this, but she like tied us to the front of her saddle and rode with us. And uh, I had from a very, very early age, a Welsh pony who was very naughty uh, growing up and he taught me a lot and he bucked me and my sister off a lot so made us very resilient and then later on I had uh, an Arabian horse both me and my sister had Arabians and we did everything uh, from English to Western to endurance to jumping and dressage and cart driving even. And uh, then I had my Arabian all the way until she passed away when she was 29. Mm. And uh, around that time, I got my current horse, who is a draft paint cross. And she is a rescue from the rodeo. She used to be a saddle bronc. And she, yeah, she came from North Dakota. I'm in California. And she ended up in a rescue in California. And I adopted her. She was extremely feral. Uh, She wouldn't let her be, wouldn't be touched. You would go in her pen, she would turn her butt to you and like, threatened to kick you, kick you. So she had a very traumatized upbringing. She was 10 years old by the time I got her. Mm. And, uh, so it took a really long time to earn her trust. And I had lots of experience with, with horses of all kinds ever since growing up. So I knew it would be a long process and (laughs) lots of Oreo cookies. It's her favorite treat. And (laughs) now we are best buddies. Uh, she has done so many things. She's a good trail horse. We went all the way up to third level dressage together and we even did a little jumping and uh, now we just kind of play around and I ride her around bareback and we do tricks and all sorts of fun stuff. (laughs) Oh that's amazing I mean I have never heard of somebody adopting a saddle bronc out of the rodeo before I mean that that is a big deal and what a service that you you've done for for the source what what is her name? 
her name's Mystique. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Saddlebronk Lunatic Fringe. He's a very gorgeous um, black and white paint, just like her. And um, he's her cousin. So they both have the same grandfather, which is War Paint, which is a legendary uh, a Saddlebronk, who's also a black and white paint. And uh and yeah, so I love the 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 build of the saddle bronx because they're very big and stocky, but they are trained and they're they're really bred to be extremely fearful, unfortunately, mm. and very reactive to like you know and to people on their backs. And you know the whole point is they can get people off their backs. So so the poor girl, she just went through so much. And, but it really shows that it just takes patience. Like I had everyone at the barn uh, give her cookies every time they walk by her stall. Mm -hmm. And so she went from like constantly turning her butt to you to like, everyone is a treat dispenser and mm -hmm. humans exist to give her food. And I told, I'm like, she is, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm totally honest with people. I'm like, she is spoiled. Give her everything she wants. <laughs> and she's a great horse. She, everyone says that she is, she is their favorite horse. Cause she's just so intelligent. They all are. And once you get past that fearful, stage where they're just reacting to everything and then you give them their confidence back and then you tell them like everything's going to be okay we are here to service you <laughs> and give you food then they're like oh okay <laughs> I like this now <laughs> this is a fun life yeah and that's a true testament to building trust and if you build trust the relationship or how a horse was raised can change and grow into yeah. something new like there's always an opportunity for another chance right that that's what yes. I'm hearing here I love that yeah I you, fully believe if, if like she could be turned around I think any horse could be turned around yeah and that's so great I'm so glad you shared that and you were the perfect person to take on this project because I understand you were a professional horse trainer in the past so you know talk to us a little bit about that I mean you yeah. grew up with horses you've had a lot of horses in your life you've taken on this new, new horse and, and totally reworked her talk to us a little bit about how horse training was a part of your life at the time, I was with someone who was a horse trainer and he, uh, he got injured and so his clients got turned over to me. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, I spent some time working with his clients and, and taking over his uh, training barn. And the, the horses that got sent to me were the ones who weren't successful with other trainers. Mm -hmm. And so I had that experience of... Uh, one, it was extremely rewarding because people tend to be a little bit, what's the word? <laughs> like they look, tend to look down their nose at people who are like positive reinforcement, cookies, you know, that sort of style of training. And I've always been like, look, sugar has been a part of horse training for hundreds of years. If you go to the Spanish riding school in Vienna, Everyone there trains with sugar cubes in their little tailcoats. Mm -hmm. And that is literally the epitome of great horse training because those horses can do anything. They do all of the advanced movements and those horses are all happy and loving their life. So I am a big proponent of high value treats, finding the treats that your horse likes the best. Um, in my case, it's Oreo cookies and Vienna figures, fingers, <laughs> you know, other horses like, you know, ginger snaps, whatever, find the treat that the horse goes crazy for. And then everything for me is about positive reinforcement. I don't believe in like using the, the big old spade bit and then like seesawing on their mouth to get them to go on the bit or anything like that. I think you can use voice command, you can use energy and positive reward to get what you want out of the horse and build the relationship with the horse and, and make the horse's life better. Because if a horse can get on the trailer, can pick up their feet and can be well-behaved for the farrier, uh, that horse is going to have a great life. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the horse is constantly fearful and reacting in fear from their trainer and from people, then that horse is going to always go back on fear and trying and resistance. And then that horse is going to end up in an auction or in a bad situation because people will think that horse is dangerous. Um, so I think it's our responsibility as humans to give animals the best life they, they can by building trust and by uh, making everything that they need to do a very positive experience. It was very rewarding too, to like 
take on like the, the horse that everyone's like, oh, that horse will never, <laughs> never be a good kid's horse because it's so reactive. And I was able to take a horse that that was not doing well with other trainers and allow its child rider to take it to a horse show and go through a, you know, a jumping course and be able to, you know, be trailered when everyone else was saying the horse would never be able to go on a trailer. And um, really it's, it sounds silly, but it's really all about high value treats and positive reinforcement. And that does wonders for really anything. Oh, I love that. Yes. Let's treat our animals with respect and help them Mm -hmm. trust us and kindness and Kindness always wins, I think. You yes. Know, and positive re- positivity always wins. Like I, you're speaking my language here. I love that. Awesome. Now shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about your debut YA novel, The Reckless Kind. I mean, tell tell us where what inspired this or what sparked the book, and a little bit about you know what we can expect to read read when we pick it up. Yeah, it's so it was kind of inspired by a time in my life where I was experiencing a lot of a lot of horse related injuries. As it happens, you know, you can be really, really careful with horses, but they are big animals and we can get injured. So I had some concussions. I also had uh, I broke my back at one point, broke my hands at another point. So, I mean, we all we know how it is in the horse community. Like mm-hmm. everyone has had those accidents. So yep. and if you fall, you got to get right back on it. it sounds yep. like you did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But I did have a lot of judgmental people who were saying, see told you your horse is crazy. You need to sell your horse and get a better one, (laughs) you know? And uh, so that kind of spurred the idea of the Fuglestads, which is a family that takes in the animals everyone else doesn't want and uh, takes in the horses that everyone thinks is no good. And yes, they get injured because they live a little bit unconventionally and they do have a heart for unwanted animals. Um, And they're not perfect people. So everyone is a little bit judgmental of them. Everyone's like, like, what is wrong with you? If you just, you know, lived normally, (laughs) like you wouldn't have all this bad stuff happen to you. So I, I, so I love this idea of this very caring outcast family. And so I thought, the coolest way to show them would be through two point POVs, alternate point of points of view of outsiders who are like, I love this family. This family is amazing. <laughs> I want to be like them. And eventually like Asta, who is uh, the, basically the main character of the book. She's a girl who doesn't fit into the traditional, like what a woman should be. And she's told she should be grateful that this young man wants to marry her. Mm-hmm. She's hard of hearing and she has um, a very atypical appearance because she has Wardenburg syndrome. And so she's like, you know, if you finally you have a chance to get married, you should be grateful this young man wants to marry you. And she's like, just has a feeling that that's not what she wants. And so her, her friends uh, are her, are these two young men in the theater who she loves above everything. Gunnar is the oldest son of the Fuglestads and Gunnar's boyfriend, Erland is the other point of view. And so his point of view is this family is kind of awesome. (laughs) And I kind of, I, I, their son is amazing. And so these are two people who love this weird family and who eventually become a part of the weird family. (laughs) So that's kind of like the, how, how the idea started and it's all connected to horses. They do have to train a feral filly and they use sugar cubes instead of, you know, all the, the cruel horse training techniques. It's all about positive reinforcement too. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. You know, I love stories that can be told where the horses are a thread, but there's a a larger picture here. And I I understand this is historical fiction, correct? Mm -hmm. So, so how did you dive into taking on diversity and representation in a historical context, but that, you know, like, how did you research this? Because it sounds like there's a lot of interesting elements going on in this story. Yeah. So I, my favorite place to go for research is books.google.com because you can search by time period and you can read a lot of uh, books that have been scanned and digitized into Google books that were written, it goes back as far as like the 1600s. So you can find ancient manuscripts from like way back when, if you really wanted to. But I was searching in like the 
1890s to like 1910, that range, to get a feeling for the voice. And I researched everything from farrier manuals to uh, medical journals to just novels written in that period to get a flavor for the voice and the types of words used. Um, this is set in Norway, well, a country that's inspired by Norway. I read a lot of Norwegian guidebooks. And uh, especially I found a guidebook that was written by women um, about women traveling by themselves through Norway. And I was like, oh, I love to get that female voice in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, then as far as like the disability representation, the queer representation, I found this great uh, guy who was born in 1844 named Edward Carpenter. He was an early gay rights activist, early animal rights activist. He was a vegetarian. He was a socialist. He was like everything that basically society said this type of person doesn't exist <laughs> but like no he, he wrote tons of pamphlets so you know there were people who are just as diverse as there are now and those voices have certainly been kind of silenced back then but if you do some digging you can find those voices and you can find out that you know people back then were just like we are now uh, they are were just as messy they were just as complicated they were just as opinionated in some cases. And so uh, that was, uh, I, I love research. I love figuring out what people were like back then. And I'm a big fan of the clothes too, the clothes and the, uh, just the way of life back then too, that was so heavily focused on animals. And I love it. <laughs> that is fascinating. And you know, how, how fortunate are we that there's something that you can access on the internet where you can get to some of these probably more challenging to find manuscripts like things written by a woman or someone with a point of view like the gentleman that you described because a lot of that stuff has gotten buried or is deleted from history and you're <laughs> you're bubbling it up and you're bringing it back to the surface inside of this book I mean that that's got to feel incredible to, to give that voice yeah, definitely. I love Google Books. And so if anyone out there is writing historical fiction and you're like, where do I even get started? How do I how do I get into the mindset of like the historical time period? Mm -hmm. Go on Google Books. You can search like whatever time period you want. <laughs> and then you can like just search for like words like like I, I'm big into horse stuff. So you just type you can type in some like parts of horses like coffin bone. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can find like farrier manuals about like dealing with laminitis, which is something that we all deal with now, dealing mm -hmm. with colic, dealing with uh, navicular disease. And what's really fun for the horse people is finding the remedies for these things way back, back then. And they're like giving horses things like opium. Mm -hmm. And I know, <laughs> and they're, they're like making these mixtures of things and, uh, you know, just old timey remedies to like giving a horse coffee and whiskey for Pollock. But then there's some things that are like, oh gosh, uh, like they would bleed horses. And mm -hmm. this is happening even all the way in the like 1900s, which you, th you would think, wow, bleeding must have been something that was like medieval. No, they were doing it like in the 20th century. So I, I don't know how many horses survived that. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's something I brought it up, up in my book um, because I have one farmer who's like, oh, the horse has colic, we're going to bleed him. And the Fuglestads are like, no, please don't do that. <laughs> we're going to do, we're going to put oil in their intestines and we're going to walk them and we're going to see if uh, we can if we can fix this without resorting to bleeding. <laughs> wow, that is fascinating. I, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine the things you probably came across. Like, how do you keep yourself from getting too weeded with that stuff though too? Did you set aside like, I'm only going to research for four hours here or, you know, or did you just lose yourself? And then when you feel like, felt like you had enough, start the writing of the book or insert things into your writing? Yeah, I, I would just research constantly for hours and hours and hours. So I do admit that I would get lost in research and I have so much research that I didn't even end up using. Um, but it's really, really fun to just, you know, read those old books and um, just get like a vibe going with like what, what that feels like. And yeah, I, I think I did mostly a lot of my research prior to writing though. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was just like, Oh, I love this time period. I want to write something like this in the time period. And probably I kind of started researching like in 2012 mm -hmm. and I would just like read lots of stuff. And then it wasn't really until I think late 2013 or 2014 that I actually sat down and started writing the book. 
That's awesome. So you you kind of got into the world and got your frame your frame of mind around how how you wanted to include these th- sort of things before you started writing. I, that I'm yeah. glad you answered that too because I was wondering, did you research as you went, or did mm-hmm. you it, emerge yourself first and then go to the writing? So yeah, that's great. yeah. I kind of immersed myself, but there there were times and still even as I write now, I will get to a part and I'm like, I need to describe, you know something in the book like I need to describe what this looks like or I need to describe what is happening here and so then I would be like okay I'll go into the research and I'll find you know an old description of of a Scandinavian town or something just so I can get that uh that flavor going oh my gosh that's so fun I I imagine that was a blast doing all that and diving deep now I I really like this too as I was doing galloping around your website doing research for for your interview question you have a lot of great interviews and other podcasts that you've been on, but I, I saw one that really stood out for me. So BuzzFeed named mm-hmm. The Reckless Kind one of 16 LGBTQIA and young adult novels to devour this fall. How did that make you feel when, when you were named on that list? Yeah, that was great. And I really hope that it leads to people finding the book because it is so hard to you know, there's so many books out there and there's, it's so hard to get readers attention because there's movies, there's TV, there's all sorts of media. And so, um, being like on a buzz, Buzzfeed list is huge. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, hopefully have people find you really easily. So that was thrilling. That was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really great. And then in this book, is there a message or, or theme that you really hope readers will grasp when they finish that last page? Yeah, the, I think the most important thing is compassion. Mm-hmm. I would say that's like the main theme, compassion for yourself, compassion for your friends, because what gets, there's so many difficulties that are faced along the way. And what gets this group uh, through it is their love and support unconditionally of each other and uh what brings them together is that they uh unjudgmentally love each other uh and uh don't put unnecessary expectations on each other and I think that's a really important message I mean there's also the importance of following your heart and there's so many pressures that are put on people especially teens from parents from society and uh, staying true to yourself and living authentically I think is a really important message I hope teens will get from it Oh, I love that. I mean, we need more of that in the world for sure. I mean, I love I love the compassion, not judging others, you know, loving people for who they are, following your passions. That's sounds beautiful and perfect to me. <laughs> now, <laughs> and and we were talking, you just got your copies of your oh, yeah. hardcover with the slip cover and everything. So Hold up your book and talk to us about yeah. the book cover. It's beautiful. Tell us a little bit about the book cover design. So the cover design was uh done by Lisa Perrin, who's one of my favorite illustrators. She's done all sorts of uh, book covers for many best-selling novels. And I was so shocked and surprised when I found out Lisa would be designing my book cover because I had a Pinterest board of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if my book cover looks like this someday? Mm-hmm. So I just would collect lots of book covers that I liked. Mm-hmm. And Lisa's, there were many of Lisa's book covers on there. And so let's see, it was late... Uh, 2020 that I got the first sketches from my publisher on what this would look like. And I saw, you know, signed in the corner of the sketches, Lisa Parent. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I went to her website and um, I was like, is that the Lisa Parent I'm thinking of? And yes, it was her. It was the, you know, the artist that I had already had tons of her, her covers on my Pinterest board. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they actually got her to do the book cover. I really didn't have any say in how things uh, would look. They gave me sketches and they're like, this is the direction that we're going with it. And then later they sent uh, color, like different color variations. And um, I was just thrilled with how it turned out. And then uh, Janine Argo is the art director who did, uh, you know, who laid out like the back and who did all the, like the interior designs. And there's some 
some nice uh, designs on each chapter heading, which is really great. Yeah, so it was really, really exciting to get something that looks so beautiful. And then it's, it's fun too when you see like the inside color. <laughs> it's beautiful. You should, Thank and you. how exciting that have somebody that you respected and you loved her work design your cover. I mean, that is really exciting. Now, you mentioned your publisher. Talk to us a little bit about uh, how how you how you came to your publisher, how that relationship worked, and and you know this is this is your debut novel. So I mean, you have a publisher, you have a beautiful book design, you've got you know your hardcovers there. Talk to us a little bit about how you cultivated that relationship. Yeah. So the the whole getting published journey is a long process, as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. It started back in I think I sent my first two like couple query letters out in 2015. Queries are when you send little email pitches to agents and you're like, this is my book. This is what my book's about. Uh, are you interested in reading more, <laughs> basically? And I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't quite sure if my book was ready yet. So I sent out, I think like five query letters to different agents who I had kind of researched through um, at that time manuscript wishlist, which is mswishlist.org, which is where uh, agents will post the types of things that they're looking for. Hmm. And I uh, got a full request right away from one agent. And I was like, that's really exciting. And I didn't query anymore because I'm like, I want to find out what the feedback is on this. Cause I'm still not sure if it's ready. Mm -hmm. I, I waited three months and that agent actually replied back with a lot of really helpful feedback. They really liked the manuscript, but it was, they felt that it wasn't ready yet. Based on the feedback they gave me, I did another revision. And then in 2016, uh, pitch Wars was ramping up. And Pitch Wars is a competition where you pitch your manuscript to potential mentors who are in the publishing industry, who will then guide you through the revision process and then help you query uh, agents. And then hopefully you'll get an agent from that. I submitted to Pitch Wars and also was revising with fellow Pitch Wars entrants in the months leading up to Pitch Wars. And I didn't get in. I didn't get accepted. And then there was another competition, uh, Author Mentor Match. And I also didn't get into that either. And so I kept on revising. But actually, I got an agent through a query I had sent earlier in 2016. Um, I signed with that agent in 2017. And I worked with that agent on revisions. And we went out on sub to publishers for a year and uh, got a few like revised and re resubmits, but ultimately a lot of rejections. And then that agent after a year left the industry. And I had been told, well, your book is pretty much dead because it's it had already been on sub, uh, but I still believed in it. And mm -hmm. so I queried agents again. Um, and about a month later, I signed with the agent who would sell The Reckless Kind. And uh, it still took about a year on submission to different editors until uh, finally Dan Aaron Haft, who's like a legendary editor, who's edited so many of like my favorite uh, yeah, YA novels like Adam Silvera's More Happy Than Not and uh, Samir Ahmed's uh, books. I was like super thrilled. So uh, what's really hilarious though is after Dan acquired my book, he actually left. So I had experiences of like my first agent leaving and then my editor uh, leaving uh, to go pursue other career opportunities. So I was so lucky though, because Alexa uh, Weho took over the editorial process and she was a fantastic editor. I absolutely loved every bit of feedback she gave on the manuscript and she made it like so wonderful. And uh, then, yeah, and then uh, that was 2019. So it took two years uh, to finally get it published. The traditional publishing process is a very long process. Mm -hmm. I finished my first draft in 2014, and then now it's finally getting published in 2021. Wow. Yeah. And, and who, who is your publisher? Um, so Hoteen. So Hoteen. So good for you for not giving up. I mean, you took some major dings there where your agent going in a different direction, somebody who was 
working on your editing went in a different direction, but you, and you, but you stayed true and you believed in your project. And I think that's what a lot of critics have to do. Like you're going to get rejection. Mm -hmm. You're not going to win contests. You're not going to get selected for things. But what I always hear, and it's a common thread in this podcast anyway, is there's always a yes. You just have to be tenacious enough to stick to your guns, believe in your work. And somewhere out there, there's a yes that'll get you across the finish line because look where you are now. I mean, are you, uh, were, did you ever doubt that you were going to get here? I mean, you got there. That's I had, big. I had tons of doubt. I, a lot, a lot of the time I was like, what, what if I've put so much time and effort mm-hmm. into this and it never gets published mm-hmm. or what if it gets published and everyone hates it? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> there's like all, all these fears. Yeah. Just aim for a hundred rejections. I think it's also really important to, when you get those rejections, use it as an opportunity to do revisions and feedback. Mm-hmm. Cause I, dur- during the pouring process, I got a lot of feedback from agents who are like, I like this, but this particular element of it wasn't working for me. And so you revise based on that feedback. And mm-hmm. uh, even during the submission to editors process, I uh, got some feedback and then I was could revise based on that feedback. Hopefully the finished product is so much stronger than, because uh, if you just get rejections and you're like, I'm just going to keep on sending it out anyway, and it, there, there's room for improvement, but you didn't take that room for improvement, then you're, you, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot or you're not like taking advantage of the opportunity to make it better. So good, uh, good, good advice. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that, and, and that's part of the process. Revisions and edits are part of the process of, of being a successful author. So good for you. Proud of you, you know, so what, what, <laughs> would you, what would you say to yourself during those times of like severe doubt? Like, how did you pull yourself out of that space and just say, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm, I believe in this. Like, what, what did you do anything for yourself to get through those moments? Well, I think what's been really helpful is being in a community of writers and having writer friends. So I saw, there's so many people around me in the writing community who are also going through the similar rejections and, and all that. And I I would see my friends like get the rejections, but then ultimately sign with the agent, get the rejections and then ultimately uh, get published. So I think seeing other people experience the same sort of difficulties that I did just kind of showed you, okay, it's happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. Rejection is part of it. Like, and I've interviewed so many authors on my YouTube channel too. And it seems like every single one of them, you know, it takes 10 years to get published usually. And it's a whole big old process of a bunch of people saying no to you until you eventually find that one person who connects with your work. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a great YouTube channel too. I'll make sure to link to that in in your show notes so people can go check that out as well. You give some great advice. You've been through a monstrous amount with just getting this book through, but, but here you are, you've got great press. You're, you're getting listed on these lists that are getting it out into the world. How are you reaching your readers? Like what, what is, what's some advice that you can give other authors on how to, how to reach readers? Obviously you're doing the right thing with media and and interviews and podcasts and things like that, but how are you getting the message out about this book? I'm still learning. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm podcast. So like, that's how I found you. I'm like horse podcast. <laughs> awesome. I've been like pitching myself to podcasts on Instagram. I've just been like taking pictures of my book with, with like my animals <laughs> and like mm-hmm. using the hashtags uh, so that people can see it. I'm really lucky that my publisher has been sending out a lot of advanced copies to reviewers and readers. And uh, there, there's a Goodreads giveaway recently. So those people who won will get a chance to read it. And so hopefully word of mouth uh, by people who read it will tell their friends about it. I was really thrilled recently like someone uh, a reader on TikTok made a little TikTok video about my book and that was the most thrilling thing I've ever experienced in my life <laughs> I was like wow someone I don't know read my book and made a TikTok about it awesome. thank you that's like that made my year say I do, I'm still figuring out I don't have a lot of advice learning as much as I can and trying to find outlets to share my book and talk about it Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, you know, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head there. It's always a work in progress. There's always yeah. 
a new thing to try or a new, but it sounds like you're, you're in all the right places and being on horse podcasts is great. And, you know, taking pictures with the animals, letting people know that, you know, you're a horse person. I think that that helps in the horse community anyway, have buy-in, but it sounds like you already have some amazing social proof. I mean, people are reading it and loving it and making TikToks of your book. Like that's the coolest part about being an author is when someone you don't know enjoys your book and shares a picture or just, you know, sends you some nice words. And I did want to mention too, there's a couple great Facebook groups uh, for people who love horse books that you might want oh, to check really? out. Yeah, oh, really? Oh, I'm going to have to find those. Yeah, there's uh, horse books for grownups. It's not, and I think that your book would be applicable in there too. I mean, okay. because, you know, and plenty of uh, YA has shared their horse book addicts. And then there's a group where a bunch of us are in called Authors of Books for Horse Lovers. So Okay, awesome. There's a lot of great tip sharing in there and, and building. My big thing is Authors Unite and Authors Supporting Authors. So come be a part of our community. And okay. We'll take care of you. Definitely. Yes. Lots of newsletter swaps happen in those groups too uh, with other authors. So it'd be a really good place for you to kind of get to know the author community who are writing about horses. Oh, cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. I will definitely join those groups. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll see a lot of value there. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, word of mouth and getting to know who, who other authors are that write similarly. And then we just, you know, we share readers. I mean, our reader, your readers are my readers are their readers. So yeah, we're not competition. We can work together. I like to ask this question of the authors that come on the show because everybody has a little bit of a different perspective, Mm -hmm. but for you, what has been the very best part of being an author? But then on the flip side, what has been the hardest part? I think you kind of touched on a couple of things. One, getting that TikTok video. The other, like the, that the yeah. traditional process took so long. But is there anything else in that space? Best thing, worst thing about being an author? I mean, the best and the worst is getting reviews from people who mm. don't know me. Mm. <laughs> like, like because whenever I'm sending something to friends for feedback, uh, you know, there's always that like, oh, you're just saying nice things because you're my friend. Mm-hmm. And I can't like, I don't know for sure if they really liked it or if they're just saying that. So, but when you get reviews, whether it's from trades or from random people and they're positive and they're people who don't know you, then you're like, that feels good because I know that that's someone's honest opinion. But that said, when you do, I I shouldn't even admit, I do not read Goodreads. No, yeah, it, sure. it, it can be brutal over there. I, for sure. But uh, let's just say, you know, occasionally I might hear that someone in the real world might not connect with the book. That, that stings a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but it's also important to remember not every book is for everyone. There's some books that like other people love. I, I don't get it. I don't get that book. <laughs> and then there's some people that um, there's some books that like people hate and then I love it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone's opinion is different. It's important not to take things personally if someone doesn't connect with your work. You cannot write something that's going to please everyone. There's just no mm-hmm. way. It's like, it's like trying to create a soft drink that everyone in the world would love. Like some people love Diet Coke and can't live without it. I don't care for it, you know? So it's just, (laughs) it's just subjective. So I I think you summed that up really well. So you got the best and the worst in one answer. I love that. I know. Reviews are the toughies for sure, but we need them. And sometimes the thing to consider too, is some of the people who may not have had a taste for your book that share reviews, it gives a balance, right? Like if you're (laughs) out there with 3000 five-star reviews and there aren't even one negative sometimes that can be uh looks strange like is this person you know putting stuff into the world that's not real and then on the flip side, some some of my coolest quote polls have come from, you know, somebody that didn't like the whole thing, but said some neat, some neat thing, like how they really loved how the horses were just as important as the human characters. Like, you know, so th- there's always there's value, but you just gotta be with it when you're ready. And most of the time, don't read them, right? It's like the yeah. celebs don't read their their bad reviews. Celebs don't look at, you know, gossip magazines. So we don't have to either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And that actually, there is some value to reading the negative reviews because you could always be like, okay, I see some an area that I could have done better. And maybe I'll work on doing that a little bit better in the next book. Oh, absolutely. And and we grow as writers. The longer mm-hmm. we write, the more we write. The next project, every book builds upon the last book and gets better and better and better. It's, you know, it's, it's a skill. Mm-hmm. And we grow as we do it more. Now, if you could go back in time, what advice 
would you give yourself when it came to getting this book written? A part of me is like, I I would tell myself that it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And like, but part of me is like, if I knew how long it would, would take, would I have like stuck through it for so long? My advice would just be like, take your time, be patient. Um, it's, it's not going to happen soon. It will happen, but take advantage of all the time that you have, uh, now to just revise it and make it as good as can be. Um, and, and make peace with the fact that it's not going to be published next year or the year after, or even the year after (laughs) it's going to be a long haul. Especially going in in the traditional route like you did. Yeah. And then, and also I'm hearing uh, too, basically like the message in the book that you have written is follow your passion, follow that Mm -hmm. dream, stay, stay the course because it will happen. So patience and stay in the course, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, you did talk a little bit about the pitch wars earlier, and I I haven't heard of that before. I think it sounds fascinating. So now you are a pitch wars YA mentor. Yeah. About this program and the work that you're doing with them. It sounds like a great opportunity to grow your own skills, but also help other authors grow as well. Yeah. I, I highly recommend it. If anyone is pursuing traditional publishing and doesn't yet have an agent, mm-hmm. what it is, is in September, you have the opportunity to submit to your manuscript through pitch wars to, I believe you have four or five different mentors that you can submit to. Um, and you can go to the pitchwars.org website and you can um, read all the information about it and you submit your manuscript and then you, uh, you basically wait and we, ha- we need a month to like read through all those submissions and everything. And then we as mentors will pick the manuscript that that we want to work with. And keep in mind, if you don't get picked, it's not a it's not anything negative about you. Uh, I got 70, over 70 submissions this year, so I can only pick one. Mm. So it's like you have a one in 70 chance of getting picked, basically, if you submit to me. And uh, I, I will then, after selecting the manuscript, work with the author, I believe until February, revising the manuscript, uh, getting the query le- letter in perfect shape. And then I believe in February, there's the agent showcase where the work is posted on the Pitch Wars website. Agents can look at it and then request uh, things. And then the author is also welcome to go out and cold query, uh, agents as well after that. And uh, hopefully, uh, after it all is all over, um, the author will get an agent, but even if you don't get an agent after pitch wars, like you are not alone. Many people do not get agents through pitch wars. Just keep on cold querying. My really good friend, uh, didn't get an agent through pitch wars but through cold coring got her agent got published and now has a great great relationship with her with their agent and great relationship with their publisher so it's just uh like with anything it's a long old process but pitch wars (laughs) is a great opportunity for learning and perfecting your craft and i highly recommend it that's awesome i mean what a contribution you're you're making for someone else i mean you you had people helping you along the way with revisions and now you're yeah. offering, you're offering that forward and even if you don't get an agent what i'm hearing is you you'll have a more polished manuscript and you'll have someone assisting you with writing the query letters yeah. so there's a better opportunity on the back end you know so that's that's a great framework so thank you yeah. for doing that yeah, no problem. There's also another program called Author Mentor Match, which is a similar thing. Uh, instead of an agent showcase, though, at the end of it, authors just go in cold query, but it's another great opportunity to get a mentor. That's awesome. And I'll make sure to link to those those places in the show notes so people can get directly to your recommendations. So thank you for sharing that. And then <laughs> I'd like to ask this question. Is there anything a listener of the show might be surprised to learn about you? Can you make like the world's best chocolate chip cookie or, you know, do a handstand for 46 minutes? Okay. So I live in a very urban area. I live in Burbank, California, which is kind of known for like being the movie industry capital of the world. So when people think of Burbank, they usually think movies, film and TV, and it's like a big city, but this is an incredibly like farmy horsey area. So I own three sheep 
<laughs> I live in like a tiny studio apartment, but I own three sheep and my horse and, uh, and, and yeah, so that's, I guess a little bit surprising, uh, <laughs> for people. That's awesome. What, uh, what do you do with the sheep? Just hang out with them or do you make yeah, yeah. things out of their wool or. <laughs> yeah. I just feed them and look at them. Um, they live down the street. Uh, people here have like little barns in their backyard. So there's like a little barn they live at. And they also have a little goat friend uh, who isn't mine, who belongs to the person who lives there. And then there's also two pigs that have been rescued that live there as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a weird little community we're in but people are very like there's lots of farm animals and lots of horses and stuff here <laughs> oh that's awesome so you can live in the movie capital of the world and still get mm -hmm. your animal fix and, and find these little pockets of people who are loving on their animals that's fantastic and what's really crazy is like on the um sidewalks the there's like little crosswalk buttons up high that have a little horse on them for people who are riding their horses on the streets and they can just like hit the crosswalk oh. from their horse. <laughs> Fantastic. I love hearing that. Yeah. We have uh, actually Arizona. I live in Arizona and it's mm -hmm. way more horsey than I assumed. And I'm in a neighborhood where people have, you know, these little less than an acre lots and you can have your horse in the background and people have yeah. chickens and all sorts of things. And we have those buttons. Yeah. I, I'm from Michigan. A real uh, originally I've never seen a button on a thing where you can push it to, for a horse crosswalk. So I think that's yeah. thing. So that's cool. <laughs> West Coast has it right when it comes to horses. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, you you know, congratulations on your first book. And I got to ask, what's next? What are you curious about? Are, you know, since you're in California, are you going to do a screenplay for this? Or are you going to do another book? Like, what's going on? I, yeah, I have another book finished. And I actually recently let's just say this. I, I am getting that revised and getting it ready to go, uh, to my publisher. So that's next. I have, I majored in film, so I'm familiar with film, but I'm not a big fan of writing screenplays because it's like this piece that is not a finished piece unless someone buys it and it gets made into a movie. Um, so I like books because they're like finished when, when they're done, people can read it and enjoy it and finish it. So I would love if someone wanted to adapt my book for a film or a animation or a TV show, mm -hmm. that would be awesome. Um, and if they paid me for it, I would be more than happy to write the screenplay, but I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely sticking to book writing, uh, exclusively for the time being. Well, that, and that's the thing. Once you have a book, you always have that book and you can look at other opportunities of what to do mm -hmm. with that intellectual property as you, you know, move down the road. Now, I, I, I didn't know you had a background in film. That's really cool. Now, did that help you with your writing of books? Like being, being able to frame up like how a movie is, did that help you kind of create the scenes of your books? Yeah. When I was in film school, I did write a lot of screenplays. And so I learned the screenplay format and there's like a plot structure, uh, which is like the eight sequence plot structure. And so I, that did kind of apply the eight sequence plot structure to my book as I write. Uh, I will say it had a little bit of a detriment because my early drafts are very dialogue and action heavy because I had so much experience with screenplay writing. So then I had to kind of go back and like put in the feelings and put in all of the, the sensory details. And so it, it took a little time to unlearn the screenplay mindset and get into the novel writing mindset. But I much prefer of the two mediums, I prefer writing novels where you can like write the emotion. Mm -hmm. And I also was a drama minor. So I kind of I feel like I'm kind of like a method actor when I write because I write from first person point of view. So I like write from the point of view of the character. So I'm kind of like acting on the page as it were. Oh, I love that acting on the page. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's just fascinating insight about how you had to kind of unlearn the the action and dialogue to add the emotion which is you know you could because the actors put the emotion in in the, the screenplay but yeah with your words for your characters in your book you have to add that so that's really fascinating uh conversation point but I think on your YouTube channel you didn't you share like the emotion thesaurus oh yeah the emotion thesaurus I, I like even have it here like I have to lift this up but, I had um, never heard of that that's fascinating it's so useful about that yeah so it's so useful, especially if you're like 
getting feedback from someone on your manuscript and they're like writing things like, what is this person feeling here? You're like, oh, it's in my head. I forgot to put it on the page though. So it's like page after page of like an emotion, like envy, terror, you know, whatever. And then it has like a ton of like physical action. So what someone will physically do when they are feeling that emotion. And then internal sensations has a list of like, what are the internal sensations? Like my stomach clenched, my skin heated, you know, that sort of thing. And then it's, it has like a bunch of like associated words, like verbs and things. And like at the beginning it has a lot of tips for how to convey emotion with like things like atmosphere as well. So I, I think that's like one of the most useful books. It's the one I pull out like all the time, uh, when I'm going through a scene and, uh, and it's a good thing to read through your manuscript and ask yourself, is it clear to the reader what this person is feeling? And if not, you can plop in a little bit of whatever the emotion thesaurus says, like, stomach clenching, tongue drying, whatever, whatever <laughs> the internal sensations are. Yeah, I love that. I'm so glad that you made a little YouTube video of that. I'll include that in your show notes as well so people can see it because I, I hadn't heard of that before. And I think that's what a fascinating, awesome tool. So thank you for yeah. sharing that with other people. I had, had not heard of it before. And I was like, I immediately like put it on my Amazon wish list. I'm like, I am getting this. This is amazing. So, so useful. Yeah. You know, if you ever get stuck, it's just a great place to go. And, you know, mm -hmm. what does someone feel like if they're, they're doing that? So that, that's a great resource. Now, Carly, A, I love your name, but I've, I've also so enjoyed this conversation. Can you share with listeners where they can find more information about you and where to find your book? So my website is carlyheathauthor.com and that has all links to my social media. Um, I'm most active on Twitter at Carly L. Heath and on Instagram at Carly Lynn Heath. Lynn spelled L-Y-N. The Reckless Kind is available to buy everywhere books are sold and it, you can get it in e book format. You can get it in hardcover. You can get it in audiobook. And it's available, like I said, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, libraries. And uh, you can keep in touch with me at carlyheathauthor.com. I am on Twitter at Carly L. Heath. And I'm on Instagram at Carly Lynn Heath. And I also have a YouTube channel. If you just search Carly Heath on YouTube, you can find my YouTube channel with lots of interviews with other authors. Fantastic. And I will make sure to link to all those places in the show notes. This has been such an awesome conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Carly, as well. And I can't wait to read your book, too. I'm really excited about it. Yay, Authors Unite. It's all about taking care of each other and, and get into our communities for, you know, mm -hmm. equestrian authors. And we all take good care of each other. So we'd love to, to have you come on in as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.